are about to come upon the long-awaited moment in which Virgil is finally caught slack-jawed. Hi, I'm Mark Scarpa. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which, as you well know, we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we are at the point amongst the hypocrites, the college of the hypocrites, the synod of the hypocrites, in which Virgil is going to finally find something that even he can't believe. We are in Lower Hell. We're in the large, giant landscape of the eighth circle of fraud that takes up the bulk of Inferno. We are down in the sixth evil pouch of fraud. And if you don't know what any of that means... You need to go backwards and catch up with us, but so be it. We're down here with the hypocrites walking around in their leaden cloaks, and we have come to lines 109 through 126 toward the very back of Canto 23 of Inferno. Here it is. I started up with, Oh, friars, your evil ways... But I didn't say anything else because my eyes caught sight of one who was crucified with three stakes on the ground. When he saw me, he had a writhing fit, puffing out his beard with lots of sighs. Friar Catalano realized what was going on and said to me, The one nailed here, the guy you stare at counseled the Pharisees that it was expedient for one man to be martyred for the rest of the populace. He is stretched out and naked on the road, as you see, and he must first feel the heavy tread of each of us as we pass this way. His father-in-law also lies stretched out across the floor of this ditch, as are the rest of that council who sowed the evil seed among the Jews. At that, I saw Virgil slack-jawed about this one who was pulled into the shape of a cross, a dishonorable fate for the rest of this eternal exile. That's where we're going to stop it, with Virgil's reaction and with the explanation of this figure crucified in the bottom of this ditch, crucified in such a way on the ground that these friars in their leaden coats, their gilded leaden coats, have to walk on top of him. Several things to talk about in this passage. I want to talk a little more about hypocrisy. I want to talk about Dante's misdirected beginning of this passage. I want to talk about who this is, stretched out on the bottom of the pouch crucified. I want to talk about some structural, you know how much I love architecture, structural intrigues (laughs) throughout this passage. I want to talk about the larger question of anti-Semitism in comedy, and then I want to finally end up with Virgil's response. So let's get started with hypocrisy. Of course, we're down here in the College of the Hypocrites, and hypocrites, especially in post-Victorian morality, are most often seen as sexual misbehaviors. (laughs) People who commit some kind of sexual peccadillo and get caught in the act while at the same time telling other people not to. One thinks of any number of 
television preachers. But Dante's notion of hypocrisy is different, and I just want to underline that so that you really see it. First of all, these hypocrites, as we talked about in the last episode of this podcast, are political hypocrites and caused a great deal of violence to erupt in Florence and, in fact, instigated that violence to throw the Ghibellines out of Florence. Secondly, and this is what's important for us to see, hypocrisy is dangerous. It leads to the death of people. It leads to a mass execution, as in fact it does with these two, Catalano and Lodoringo, as it did in the past, I should say. We're not talking about hypocrisy like getting caught in bed with your neighbor's wife. We're not talking about hypocrisy like telling me to save money while you go out and buy a Maserati. We're talking about a much more deadly form of hypocrisy. And I think if you step back and you think about our current world, you can see this hypocrisy at work. Hypocrisy is not a matter of sexual peccadilloes. It is, in fact, something much more dangerous. And if we look around our current situation, we can see hypocrites in every direction. Hypocrites who, in fact, may not have our best interests at heart, and hypocrites who, in fact, may lead to a great conflagration, a conflagration that will ultimately envelop the rest of us. Again, hypocrisy is not an easy sin. It's a deadly one. Now to the passage. It starts with Dante saying, I started up with, oh, friars, your evil ways. And then he breaks off mid-sentence because he sees the guy crucified on the ground. I love this bit more than I can possibly tell you. The passage starts off with misdirection. Look, we expect down here amongst the hypocrites some kind of invective against the church. We've already been here in Canto 19 with the Simoniacs. We expect a standard diatribe about how the church is a hypocrite about X, Y, and Z, how mendicant friars are supposed to be poor and yet gain riches by begging off other people. We, we expect a kind of standard prophetic diatribe. And in fact, I would even argue that up to this point with the hypocrites, Dante, the poet, has been setting us up for that diatribe, for the prophetic moment in which the prophet steps out and condemns social ills. But in this case, the prophet gets cut short by something in his path, by this crucified figure in his path. And I should tell you that in the Florentine, what Dante says, oh, friars, your evil ways, the word evil ways there is mali, and it is itself confusing. It can mean suffering. He could be starting to say, oh, friars, your suffering that you undergo here in hell, or he could be saying, oh, friars, the, your evil ways, as I translated it, you're, the ways that you're evil or bad, so inflict the world, blah, 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 blah. The Mali is slightly ambiguous, and I think Dante knows it. The poet knows it. He knows he's playing with misdirection here. He's playing with you. He started into a sentence that you can't finish, and I should tell you that there are many Dantistas who get tripped on Mali, this Florentine word, and make a big deal about, oh, that Dante is, is going to go off onto the suffering of these friends or he's going to go off onto their evil doings. And 
I personally like to leave it ambiguous. I know my translation went to your evil ways because I had to do something to make Molly make sense. I couldn't say, oh, far as you're evil. Well, I suppose I could. Oh, far as you're evil. Or, but evil, see, doesn't carry the notion of suffering. Maybe I could have said, oh, far as your pain, and then left it right there. But pain isn't really Molly. It's hard to put it into English, in other words. And so I made a choice that this is going to be a prophetic denunciation of the hypocrisy of friars. But you should just know that the word is cut. And so we feel the misdirection. I think that's the intention of the poet. And then we see the sight on the ground. And let's talk about that sight. The passage goes on, I didn't say anything else because my eyes caught sight of one who was crucified with three stakes on the ground. Most likely, we're talking about one in each hand and one through both feet. A true crucifixion out of a representation of Jesus crucified. We should automatically, right here, think back to the friars calling themselves, who the hypocrite friars walking along, calling themselves the out-of-balance scales. Remember, I told you, they're a perversion of a crucifixion of a cross because the scales are out of balance. And I told you, keep that in your mind because it's going to play out in the passage. It is playing out in the passage. We've had it set up for us that they themselves are crosses that are out of balance, out of balance scales. They look like crosses that are tilted one way or another because of their leaden cloaks. And here we come across another inversion or perversion or parody of the crucifixion. This time someone on the ground. We should note that this person is Caiaphas. We'll talk more about this in just a minute, who Caiaphas is. But that Caiaphas is also, to go back to that previous bit about out-of-balance scales, is also a scale. If they step on him as they pass over him, he feels their weight. So he himself functions as a scale on the ground. We should also note that he's naked on the ground so he's not in a lead cloak presumably so he can register the weight of the lead cloaks more there's more to be said about this but let's just pass on in the passage when he saw me he had a writhing fit puffing out his beard with lots of size Friar catalano realized what was going on and said to me the one nailed here the guy you stare at counseled the pharisees that it was expedient for one man to be martyred for the rest of the populace this is the the giveaway, the tell in the paraphrasis that tells us who this is. The reference here is to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, to chapter 11, starting at verse 45 and running through 53. And just for the sake of completeness, I'd like to actually read you that passage. This is from the New Revised Standard Version of the New Testament. And let me just read you uh, John 11, 45 through 53. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he, Jesus, had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them 
Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation suffer. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. From that day forward, they, that is the Pharisees, plan to put him, that is Jesus, to death. So the notion here is that Caiaphas makes this statement. Listen, we'll, we'll sacrifice one guy and save the rest of us. And then the gospel text goes on and says basically that he was inspired to say that. He doesn't realize fully what he's saying. But of course, in Christian theology, he's basically saying what the truth of the crucifixion is, that one man dies for the sins of all, that one man is killed. So the rest of the world is saved. Let me remind you again, I'm not religious. I am merely presenting the background of the text itself. When this friar points out, when Catalano points out Caiaphas and says, you know, he's the guy that said it was expedient for one man to be martyred for the rest of the populace. He's talking about this exact passage from John 11. He's telling them essentially that this is the guy who uh, prophesied unwittingly of the crucifixion of Christ. He goes on, he sees he's stretched out naked. There's that naked bent on the road, as you see, and he must first feel the heavy tread of each of us as we pass by. And this is yet more crucifixion inversion because he feels the weight of the hypocrites passing over him just as of course in christian theology jesus took on the weight of the sins of the world so once again it's all of this kind of parodic notion of the crucifixion that's happening here at the bottom of the pouch of hypocrisy and that shouldn't surprise us hypocrisy at its core should for a christian writer like dante seem like a perversion of the very notion of redemption, using it for your own good and not for the good of the world around you. Let's, let's stop one second. I just look at some structural or architectural problems in this passage. When we started off at the very start, and in, you know, I didn't say anything because my eyes got the one crucified on the ground with three stakes, and I told you that that's doubling up the notion of the out-of-balance scales. There's a lot more doubling in here. When he saw me, when Caiaphas, now we know who this is, saw me at a writhing fit, puffing out his beard with lots of size, that is a direct doubling of that moment earlier in which the friars saw Dante's throat moving as he breathed. So we have that moment earlier of the breathing in the throat. We have this moment now of Caiaphas sighing so much or puffing out so much air and being so upset at being seen. Notice no one in Lower Hell really wants to be seen, although Catalano and Lodoringo certainly don't seem to shy away from being seen. They want to catch up with Dante, but this guy seems mm, very embarrassed at his lot in Hell, puffing out his beard with his lots of size. But again, it's a doubling of the moment when Dante's throat is moving and he's breathing and the hypocrites see it. There's more doubling, Catalano says, the one nailed here, the guy you stare at, counseled the Pharisees and counseled there's the synod of the Pharisees in that passage I just read you. And remember what the friar said to Dante and Virgil when they first called
caught up with them, walking as slowly as the friars do. When they finally caught up to them, they said, welcome to the synod or the college of the Pharisees. There's Here's another doubling, this Pharisee council that happens. And here's the guy who counseled the Pharisees at that moment. That it was expedient for one man to be martyred for the rest of the population. And that itself is a doubling because it's doubling the gospel text inside of comedy. There are so many doublings throughout this passage. We're going to explore this a little more in the next episode of this podcast, but it's important to see it architecturally here. He's stretched out. He's naked on the road. As you can see, he feels the heavy tread. There's another doubling, doubling of Christ taking on the sins of the world as each of us pass this way. And of course, there must be a repeated stepping on him because they keep going around the circle and stepping on him. Not exactly a doubling, but a repetition for sure. Sure, the entire 23rd canto is built so much around doublings in every direction. We're going to explore that a lot more in the next episode of this podcast. But for now, let's just pass on and talk about the problem of anti-Semitism in comedy. Let's go back to Fra Catalano and run his whole speech again. The one nailed here, the guy you stare at, counseled the Pharisees that it was expedient for one man to be martyred for the rest of the populace. He's stretched out naked on the ground, as you see, and he must first feel the heavy tread of each of us as we pass this way. His father-in-law, and he's talking about Annas, who presided over the council of the Pharisees. If you know your New Testament, you'll know the reference here. But it, it indicates that there's a second guy crucified on the bottom of this ditch. He's his father-in-law also lies stretched out across the floor of this ditch, as are the rest of that council. Oh, so maybe there are more, in fact, than just the two of them. Maybe all around this ditch are a series of crucified figures. And then this last bit, which is where we're getting to, who sowed the evil seed among the Jews. Let's just stop and talk about anti-Semitism and comedy for just a second, because this is a moment in which it comes fully up. Dante, without a single doubt, believes that the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD by the Romans was a result of the crucifixion of Jesus. That is, because the Jews and Please forgive me. Please don't accuse me of anti-Semitism here. Again, trying to present the text and the backgrounds to the text as they occur, that the Jews had killed the Son of God, and therefore the Romans exacted God's punishment with the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. There is no question that Dante doesn't believe that. However, we should also step back and say that these are the first Jews we've seen in comedy. And that is rather amazing. While we can point to this passage as a moment of anti-Semitism, given the way anti-Semitic thought worked in the Middle Ages, what is astounding is that we haven't run into many, many more Jews up to this point. I'm not trying to excuse sowed the evil seed among the Jews in this passage. I'm only trying to tell you that when we've seen the avaricious, when we've seen the heretics, when we've seen the violent, when we've seen the lustful, it is shocking that we haven't run into any Jews given the anti-Semitic stereotypes of the Middle Ages. These are the Jews in Inferno, right? here. We've seen them. And you'll notice we don't see run-of-the-mill average Jews 
anywhere. Instead, we see these figures plucked out of the New Testament and then no more. It is shocking the lack of Jews in Inferno. We would expect to see a load of them, and we don't. We won't see a big, giant collection of Jews until the very top of Paradiso. That probably should leave you slack-jawed, at least if you know anything about medieval anti-Semitism. Let's pass on and talk about Virgil and his reaction. At that, the passage says, I saw Virgil slack-jawed about this one who was pulled into the shape of a cross. In case you missed it, there's the explanation of the parody cross. A dishonorable fate for the rest of this eternal exile. These three lines have, oh my gosh, generated so much commentary over 700 years. Why? Because nowhere else in Inferno does Virgil marvel over another sinner. Nowhere else does he stand slack-jawed looking at someone thinking, what in the world is going on here? So we're caught asking ourselves why. And I'm going to give you several answers to this, and I'm not necessarily going to come down on any of these answers. I think that they're all valid answers of why does Virgil marvel at the sight of Caiaphas crucified on the floor of the pouch of of the hypocrites. Why? One, most people anymore, I shouldn't say most, many people anymore, give this idea that Virgil hasn't seen this before. Let me explain. We know that Virgil has made one trip to the very bottom of hell. Remember, he was conjured by Erichtho. We got his backstory. This is how he can lead our pilgrim down to the bottom. He was conjured by Erichtho not long after his death on a mission down to the bottom of hell. When Virgil passed by here, the harrowing of hell, Christ's crucifixion, and his descent into hell to pull the Old Testament figures out of limbo. There's some Jews in Inferno, but they weren't present. They weren't there. They were gone. All we did is hear about them. These are the first Jews we've laid eyes on. Anyway, the, the, when he passed down here, the harrowing of hell hadn't happened yet, and so this, what, this wasn't uh, in place. There was no Caiaphas stretched out on the ground here, so he's marveling at something he didn't see before. This explanation is always, to me, slightly weird because I'm not quite sure what it's actually about. I mean, we've, Virgil has seen other things that he didn't see before. For example, that scree-filled slope before the violent. Remember, Virgil said this wasn't this way the last time I passed by here. It wasn't all in rubble with the, the place where the Minotaur is standing guard. Well, he didn't stand there with gape mouth at the thing. It, he did comment that he hadn't seen it like this before. There are other, in fact, figures who Virgil wouldn't have seen before. When Virgil passed down through hell on his journey conjured by Erecto, he didn't see Francesca. He didn't see Chaco. He didn't see Farinata. He couldn't have seen uh, Brunetta Latini. There's lots of people that Virgil couldn't have ever laid eyes on before. He couldn't have seen Pierre de la Vagna turned into a tree. These things all happened after Virgil uh, had done his journey, long after the crucifixion of Christ, long after the harrowing of hell. He doesn't stop and marvel at any of them. So why does he marvel here? Why is he slack-jawed here? It is a common explanation. 
that this is just something he didn't see before and here it is, but I don't know. It seems a little incomplete. Here's a second explanation. This is a very old idea. It first got into commentary with Benevuto in 1380. It gets picked up by Velutello in 1544, and it's a very smarty pants explanation. Virgil is looking at Caiaphas crucified here and remembering a line from the Aeneid. In Virgil's own work, the Aeneid, in Book 5, line 815, Neptune anticipates the death of Polinaris by saying that one life shall be given for many. What does that mean for us? We have to kind of back up for that. Virgil has Neptune say that basically Polinaris is going to be killed rather than to kill so, so many other people with Aeneas, kind of one sacrifice and done. And everybody else will then be allowed to live. What that means is that Virgil got very close to understanding the, the doctrine of redemption in Christianity. In the same way that Caiaphas said this sentence, you know, uh, this whole, uh, it's, it's expedient that one man die for the people rather than have the whole nation suffer. In the same way, and the text is he, he said it, but he was actually kind of directed to say it as a prophecy, that unwitting prophecy, that Virgil himself gave an unwitting prophecy of Christian theology. One life shall be given for many. In other words, Virgil is marveling because he got close. He got close to understanding redemption and then didn't follow through, couldn't follow through, isn't able to follow through. It's very smart, this explanation. It, again, appears early in commentary on Inferno. It falls out of favor, and lately it's come back in kind of with a vengeance in modern explanations of this passage. I like it because Virgil is seen as a figure, and we're going to talk way more about this when we get to Purgatorio. Virgil is seen as a figure who anticipates Jesus, but doesn't quite get it. There are other pieces of Virgil's poetry in which he seems to predict the coming of a child who will save the world. Now, historically, he's talking about Augustus Caesar, but it is often seen, especially in the Middle Ages, that Virgil was very close. He was kind of seeing hazy in the distance, the messianic hope, and he may have been talking about Augustus, but at the same time, maybe he was looking way away and seeing the Messiah. And if so, that plays into this passage itself. And let me just, just stop and say one thing about that. That probably is one of the reasons Dante has Virgil as a guide. Virgil got very close to the Christian message in medieval thought because in other poetry outside of the Aeneid, he saw or anticipated the messianic hope. Um, if you read Dante and accept that the convivio, the banquet, is written before uh, comedy, which is a little bit controversial, but if you accept that, then you can see that Dante has made a play to devote himself to philosophy. He kind of comes to this in the Vita Nuova too, that he's going to devote himself to philosophy, not necessarily theology. And there's a way you can see Virgil as the bridge out of 
philosophy and on into Christian theology. And that's why Virgil is the lead here and not Ovid or Lucan or Stasius. That's why Virgil is picked to lead Dante. He's the one who kind of saw from afar one of the classical old poets in the tradition of the old philosophy who saw this messianic hope from afar. And here Virgil is caught, slack-jawed, wondering at this thing that looks very much like what he anticipated in a line in the Aeneid. Here's a third answer, and this is the one I tend to like today, but don't ask me tomorrow. At the very end of the passage, it says, A dishonorable fate for the rest of this eternal exile, eterno esilio. That phrase jumps out, eterno asilio, because it's only used one other time in comedy. It's used at Purgatorio 21, line 18, in which Virgil is again describing his fate in limbo. And Virgil refers to his fate as eterno asilio, eternal exile. So when Virgil is here slack-jawed over Caiaphas stretched out on the ground, Virgil is mourning for himself. Virgil is seeing a difficult or a over-the-top punishment for somebody who actually tried to speak the truth or was prompted divinely to speak the truth and yet didn't make it. And in the end, Virgil is mourning for himself. Virgil is the most complicated and most fully imagined character in comedy, without a doubt. He is the character, other than the pilgrim, who lasts with us the longest, all the way to the top of Mount Purgatory. He is the most fully developed character of anybody. And I would even count the pilgrim in that because the pilgrim's life, Dante the pilgrim's life, comes out of the poet's life. And the poet does not have to fully imagine his own life in order to create the pilgrim. He uses pieces of his actual experience to create this pilgrim walking across the known universe. But Virgil is made up out of whole cloth. Virgil is assembled in comedy and created as a character, and therefore he is the most fully imagined character. And this is what I think you need to know, that beyond the peak of Virgil, and Virgil is often irritated at Dante the Pilgrim, beyond the paternalism or maternalism of taking care of the Pilgrim, beyond the congratulations like with Filippo Argenti over the River Styx when Dante hopes that Filippo Argenti is torn limb from limb and Virgil embraces him and basically says, blessed is the womb that bore you, as he's said, uh, as he's said of Mary in Christ. The, the, beyond those congratulations, beyond the warnings pulling Dante back from the demon running along the embankment in the fifth patch, beyond the peak in paternalism, congratulations and warnings and all of that, the fundamental node of Virgil's character is sadness. This fundamental sadness will only deepen on this journey. Virgil is going to ascend purgatory. It borders on cruel. He's going to see people purgating their sins on purgatory. He's going to see people released from their purgation and headed up toward heaven. He's going to see people on their way to bliss. He's going to get to where he actually can be 
peer into what is essentially the threshold of heaven, and then he has to turn around and walk back to limbo. That sadness, the essential quality of Virgil, is becoming increasingly present in comedy. It was present when he showed up way back in Canto 1 when he talked about being born under the false and lying gods, there was a fundamental sadness there. And you may not have seen it, but I dare say if you go back and read the first two cantos of Inferno again, at this point, you'll see it. You'll see Virgil's longing. You'll see Virgil's expectations. In the end, this most complicated and fully imagined character in comedy laments his own fate and is caught helping someone find the presence of God, which he himself is forever denied, and which, unlike anyone else, he gets to see before he starts his long walk back to limbo. We get a long way to get to that point in purgatory. Instead, we've got more of this canto with the hypocrites, a little more to talk about them, and we're going to finish off Canto 23 in the next episode of this podcast. So subscribe, rate it, come back. I am having an absolute blast doing this. I hope that you too are having a great time doing this. Thanks for your comments. Thanks for your ratings. Thanks for connecting with me on Twitter. Thanks for finding me and talking about Dante. It is overwhelming my life, and I am enjoying every minute of it. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Mm-hmm.